This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that your Holy Spirit will be working mightily in us so that we will have a good start to the book of Isaiah and to understand how what you say uh, 2,700 years ago still applies to us today. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, do you all remember what we studied last year? That's right, man. Matthew, that's good, man. Matthew. So, when we were studying the book of Matthew, uh, I uh, looked at this commentary. Actually, it's not a commentary. It's just a book that someone gave me many years ago called The Unheeded Christ by David Cook. And David Cook actually preached right from this pulpit here before many, many years ago. For those of you who are old enough to remember, he was the principal of uh, Sydney Ministry Bible College and he wrote this book about um, uh, the book of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. And in the book, he gives the observation that there is a point in many Christians' lives where we feel that we want some space from God. We don't want to be accountable to God. We don't want to be so serious about the things of God anymore. We don't want to be too serious about God's Word. And his way of defining these Christians is that they are complacent Christians. Now, one of the observations that he makes about uh, these people is that even though they want space from God, they don't want to be so serious because, you know, I've been been very serious all my life, so I just want a bit of space for myself. I don't want to be so accountable. Most of them will feel that they are alright with God. Most of them will feel that their relationship with God is okay. If Jesus comes tomorrow, they will still be safe and they will still go to heaven. But there is a problem with complacency, right? Because you think you are right, but actually you are not. And this is where the book of Isaiah comes in. Because the book of Isaiah was written to God's people 2,700 years ago. And it's written to a group of people who were complacent. So, here in chapter 1, verse 1, it begins by telling us who wrote Isaiah, who he was writing to, and what time. So, verse 1, it says, The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So, right here begins... by telling us that Isaiah wrote very specifically to the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, and specifically to the holy city of Jerusalem. And that's going to be the main theme throughout the whole book of Isaiah. It's going to be focused on the people of Jerusalem and God's jealousy for his people in Jerusalem. It was also written, if you see in the next slide, uh, within the lifetime of Four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And here God sends a prophet, and the prophet gives a warning. That's quite interesting, right? Because in some churches in Singapore, they are always looking for the prophetic word. They want prophetic word. But actually, it's, 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 it's a bit ironic, because when you look at the Bible, God only sends prophets when things are going wrong, right? When you are <clears throat> mucking up, when you are doing wrong, God sends a prophet to warn you. So, I don't really want a prophet to come and speak to me because 
then I know that actually I'm messing up and you know God is rebuking me. And that's exactly what's happening here. So he says in verse 2, Hear me, you heavens, listen earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Now here, we see that God, through the prophet Isaiah, calls on two witnesses. The witnesses of heaven and the witnesses of earth. Before he delivers his warning. Now immediately that tells us that the warning that God is going to deliver is a very, very serious warning. But more than that, I think that God calls on heaven and earth because what he is going to accuse God's people of is against the order of nature, against the order of heaven and earth. So usually, you know, in the nature of things, children should listen to parents, right? Children should obey parents. And animals should know their master. So many, many weeks ago, I was at my favorite hawker center, Bukit Bato Avenue 6 with my family. And uh, it was very crowded. I think it was a Saturday night or it was a Sunday night. And beside our table was a table of five. Uh, four children, oh, sorry, not four children, two children, their parents and a mate. It was bustling, it was busy, it was happening. And then you hear this crying and shouting and stomping of the feet because one of the kids was screaming at the top of their voice, I want porridge! I want porridge! I don't want to eat this food! I want porridge! I want porridge! And this starts going on and on and on. It was going on for so long that basically the whole hawker center was silent, watching this table and seeing what the father and mother would do, right? So finally, the father gets up, brings the boy to the porridge store, orders the porridge, they sit down, everything seems to be going back to normal, the whole hawker center is bustling. Soon you hear this, I don't want, I don't want, I don't want this porridge, I want the other porridge. Now, I think instinctively, everybody in the hawker center knew that there's something wrong here. Because the child should obey the parents, right? But what seemed to be happening was the parents seemed to be obeying the child. So recently I got a dog, right? So this is my dog. Now imagine if my dog, right, starts attacking and biting me. There's something seriously wrong because in the SPCA or the Action for Singapore Dogs, once the dogs start attacking the masters or the owners, do you know what they do to the dogs? They put the dogs down. Because the dogs are going against the nature of things. They are attacking the master. And that's what God is saying that his people are doing. They are disobeying. It's like what they are doing is like the child disobeying the parents, rebelling against the parents. It's like the animals not knowing its master. And it's going against the very nature of heaven and earth. But it's actually worse, you know, because when you read the Bible, you need to pay attention, right? So if you look at verse 2 and verse 4, notice how Lord is spelled. 
L-O-R-D, right? But there's something special about L-O-R-D. It's in capital letters, right? Now, why is it in capital letters? It's not because, you know, when, uh, when they were writing uh, Isaiah chapter 1, his uh, caps lock got locked, you know, when he was typing L-O-R-D, and you know, it came out as L-O-R-D. No, L-O-R-D is the name of the covenant God. So here we're not just talking about some abstract creator God. We're not talking about some God who is just remote and isolated from God's people. This is the covenant God. This is the Lord God, Yahweh, who gave promises to the predecessors of the people in Judah and Israel. Sorry, Judah and uh, Jerusalem. This is the God who rescued her out of Egypt. This is the God who brought her to the desert. This is the God who gave her the promised land. This is the God who blessed her and gave her the law and asked her to obey it. Now, this is the name of God in Exodus chapter 3. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am remembered from generation to generation. So here, the sin of God's people is worse than a child rebelling against the parents or an animal against a master. This is God's people rebelling against the covenant God himself. So the passage goes on in verse 4. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord, they have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. Now, when you look at this passage, it's full of words of broken relationship. So if you look at it here, it's the words forsaken, spurn, turn their backs. The word forsaken here is the idea of uh, divorce or, or, or being deserted by a husband or wife. To be spurned is to be rejected with disdain or contempt, to push someone away. To turn your back is to ignore someone. And that's what God's people have done against the covenant God. They've done this because it looks very clearly here from this passage, right? Because they are full of sin, they're full of guilt, they do evil, and they're given over to corruption. See, fundamentally, your actions show your true feelings to people. So I was watching this movie uh, last week called Gone Girl. So the wife notices her husband's actions, right? So she be, you know, she notices that he begins to spend less and less time at home. Uh, she notices that he doesn't want to talk to her so much anymore, right? He starts acting very suspiciously. Then she goes and follows him, and then 
he sees, she sees him kissing one of his students outside a bar. So what does she conclude from all these actions? She concludes from all these actions rightly that he doesn't love her anymore. And that's exactly what God is saying here. Right? That through the actions of his people, because he's given her the law, he's put her in this place, and now she has disobeyed all that he has asked her to do, and she has no desire to want to live in holiness, that he has recognized rightly that God's people have forsaken him, spurned him, and turned her back against him. Now, I think this is a very important lesson, right? Because sometimes, as Christians, we ask ourselves the question, oh, you know, if there's a particular commandment which we find it difficult to obey, we ask, you know, why should we obey God? Now, why should I listen to what God tells me to do? Well, in the same way, why should a child obey their parents? Or why should an animal know its master? Because if, if that is the nature of things, then, then definitely as the covenant God who saved his people and brought her into the promised land and given her these rules to live by, then God's people rightly should obey God. But she no longer obeyed God because she no longer loved God or desired to please God. So I think this brings us to a series of questions, right, as we reflect on this passage. So if you look up here, these are the questions, okay? So you look up here. So in all the things that you do, do you seek to please God? Right? In the things that you do, do you seek to please God? Do you seek to be faithful to God? Do you seek to know God? And do you seek to be obedient to God? Because these questions then lead to the last question, right? Because what is the state of your relationship with God? Because if you don't live to please God or to know God or to be faithful to God, then is it because really you have forsaken God and you have spurned God and you have turned your back against God? You know, it's like imagine you have a, a, a some good friend and they are married and the one of the, your friends, the spouse comes to you and says, you know, uh, I really want a bit more space from my wife or my husband. You know, I don't really want to please my wife or husband. Or I want to do my own thing. I don't really want to be accountable to my wife or husband. Now, if you were a good friend to this person, you'd say, hey, I'm a bit worried about your marriage, right? Because if you want space from your husband, you don't want to be accountable to your husband or wife, you don't want to please them and you want to do your own thing, then what is the state of your relationship with your husband or wife? So it's the same thing, right? If you live your life and really in your life you are not seeking to please God or to know God or to desire to want to do what God wants you to do, then what is the state of your relationship with God? So this is the warning to us today. <clears throat> but there's a some more that we have to learn from this, right? So in verse 10, it goes on to say, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction 
of our God, you people of Gomorrah, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams, the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the, bulls of, sorry, in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, sabbaths and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Now, this will be very shocking to God's people because here are God's people, the faithful city, the righteous city, but God sees them as Sodom and Gomorrah. God sees them as the the sinful people. They are full of moral filth. But yet, they still think that they are alright with God. They still think they're alright with God because they still say, I do the sacrifices. I still go to the temple. I still celebrate the holy days and I still pray to God. But if you notice the reaction of God as we look at this passage, God keeps increasingly showing his frustration and anger at the hypocritical worship of his people. What are they to me, he says. I take no pleasure in them. I can't bear with them. They're detestable to me. I hate them. They are a burden to me and I weary of it. So I used to have a, a grandmother <coughs> who I used to uh, visit and stay you know, uh, during the day sometimes. And uh, my sister and I, I think we were quite irritating to her at some points in time. And uh, when we, she was particularly irritated with us, she would say something like, you know, you guys are irritating me so much that I feel like uh, vomiting blood. Right, have you ever heard that expression before? So, this is basically what God is saying, right? God is saying that, you know, he's so frustrated with people, it's almost as if he feels like vomiting blood. Because his people... He knows, don't really love him, don't really care for him, don't really want to do what he wants them to do. But they think that by going to the temple and doing a few sacrifices and praying a bit, that somehow he will accept them. It's a bit like, imagine, right? A wife or a husband is uh, cheating on the other person. And uh, they think that, well, if once a week I can buy a bunch of roses and give it to the spouse, then everything is okay. But is it okay? If anything, if the spouse knows that the other person is cheating on them, they'll be even more offended, right? Because you think, wow, you can buy me off with a bunch of roses every week. And that's the same situation with God. God sees the reality of their forsaking Him and spurning Him and turning their back on him. But yet, they, 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 they delude themselves that just because they go to the temple, make a few sacrifices, that they're okay with God. Now, it's the same thing with us, I think, as we look at this passage. 
You know, we come to church on a Sunday. Maybe you go to your youth group. Maybe you go to Bible study. And we think, okay, we are okay with God. But do you think that God is really impressed that we turned up to church uh, this morning? Or, you know, I've got some other relatives. They, they put the bar a bit lower. lower la. As long as I go to church on Easter and Christmas, God is okay with me, right? Or I'm okay with God. But do you really think that uh, God is so easily fooled, right? That I just spend two hours on Easter, two hours on Christmas, and that's, that's it. That shows my, my, my great love for God. Definitely not. Right? Because it shows that these are just the external things that I'm ticking the box and checking the box, and I think that uh, God will be fooled with it. So I was watching a video that uh, someone sent me earlier this week. It's about identity, right? What is our identity? You know, our identity as Christians, first and foremost, must be our relationship with Jesus Christ. That's our identity, right? But if I say steal something, when I know that it doesn't please Jesus, then what, what am I actually saying when I steal? I'm saying that actually I love money more than I love Jesus, right? What happens if I willfully and rebelliously keep looking at pornography? What I'm really saying by my actions is I love pornography more than I love Jesus. That's the reality. That must be my identity, right? So here as we look at this passage, God sees through their external hypocritical worship and He sees the true condition of their heart. They actually love other things above their relationship with God. But the good news comes later on, right, in verse 15. <coughs> Excuse me. He says, uh, I think it's up here on the slide. So it says in the second half of verse 15, your hands are full of blood at the end of verse 15. Then he goes on to say, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now the picture of language here is very shocking. right? He says, your hands are full of blood. It doesn't literally mean that their hands are full of blood. But it just shows that their actions are full of injustice and wrongdoing and evil and hate. And God says, change, right? Repent. Wash your hands of all your blood. Stop doing this evil stuff and do good. So here we see a series of commandments, right? Imperatives where he keeps saying, don't do bad, do good. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment, because many Christians think that to please God, I just don't do bad. Don't watch porn, don't steal, don't gossip, don't slander, don't be greedy. But God says, if you want to love Him and do the things that He desires, it is not just about don't do bad, but you must do good, right? He says here, 
do justice, defend the cause of the press, take up the case of the fatherless. And I think in the Christian life, that's what we must see. It's not just about not doing bad, it's also about doing good. And he says to his people, he reasons with them in verse 18, right? He says, look, though your sins are like crimson, right? Although your skin, sins are like scarlet, they will become white. Now, if you look here up on the slide, oh, no, go back again. You see that there's two types of picture language. Wash your hands and make yourselves clean. This is the metaphor of repentance, right? Because if I wash my own hands, I can't make myself clean. Only God can make me clean. But if I come to God willingly repentance, God says He will forgive me to the extent where I'm white as snow or wool. So I'm not very good with colors. Maybe I, I don't know, I don't have lipstick or something, right? Okay, in terms of red. But this is, what color? It's red. But what sort of red is it? It's scarlet red. It's a very, very deep, deep, deep red, right? It's not slightly red. It is like red to red. I mean, it's as red as can be, right? And God says, this is the color, the extent of your sin. This is your sin in my eyes. If you wash your hands, if you repent and you come back to me again and love me, then it becomes white as snow, right? Which is like the whitest white, right? Your sins can be like scarlet, right? Next slide. So this is scarlet. Uh, the next one. Okay, so this is all the color table for the reds, okay? So you can see that scarlet and crimson are quite close together. They are very red. Reds. He said your sin can be like scarlet or crimson, but after I forgive you, it becomes white as wool. Now this is a great assurance for us today. It shows us that if we sin, it shows us that if we, even if we forsake God, even if we turn our back on God, God is waiting there with open arms and He says, if you come back to me, I will receive you, I will accept you, and I will forgive you to the extent where your sins, which are red as scarlet and crimson, become white. Now we know this is already happen and God has already shown this to be true because in Revelation chapter 7 the people of God are shown up in heaven right and they're, they're, they're like up there the people every tribe nation people and language and they're all there worshipping God and there's one characteristic that they have they're all dressed in white robes right they're in white why are they wearing white well, in verse 14 it says, And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, this is how God forgives sins. We wash ourselves in the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus shed for us on the cross. Now this is such a great encouragement because it doesn't matter how guilty you feel, it doesn't matter how far away from God you've gone away. God is willing, God is able, and God has shown that He is willing and able to forgive you so that your sins are white as snow and of wool. 
And on the last day, you will enter into His heavenly presence in heaven. And that's why in this passage, in verse 26 and 27, looks forward to that day where it says, afterwards, Jerusalem will no longer be this unfaithful, murderous city. It will be a city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be redeemed, or God's people will redeem the justice, her penitent ones, with righteousness. Right? So God will deliver us from the weight of our guilt and our sin, and He will bring us back to Him forever in heaven. Now some people say, right, <clears throat> that, oh, why can't God just forgive everybody? Why can't I just be sinful? And God is just love. Why can't He just love me, right? I like this God of love. Why does God have to judge us? You look at verse 19, which is up here, right? It actually gives us a choice, right? It says, look, if you are willing and obedient, then, only then will you receive forgiveness. You see, part of the problem as we come uh, to the book of Isaiah is, it seems so far away, right? 2,700 years ago, in the middle of the Middle East. But one thing doesn't change. The reason why we study Isaiah is because God is always the same. God's character doesn't change. You know, He's not like He's, he's fluid, right? He's not like He's volatile. His personality is ever-changing. No, his, his, his character is fixed. So when we look at the book of Isaiah, we know that God is a holy God. Right? God is a holy God, and because He's a holy God, God is a God of judgment. But at the same time, God is a God of love. Because He says here, if you're willing to come back to me, I will forgive you. Now many years ago, there was a man who went to church and I met him and he became a Christian. The next year, we started a new sermon series. Uh, He left the church. So I went to follow up with him to try to find out what happened. So he told me that actually in the previous year we were studying from the New Testament and he felt that he was attracted to this God because this God was a loving God. But then the following year we were doing the Old Testament he felt that you know, this was a different God. This was a God of judgment. And he didn't like the God of judgment. But I think that actually his mistake was he left church uh, too early. Right? He should have finished the sermon series. right? Because God is a God of judgment. But God also is a God of love. And here we see that God is a God of judgment because as a holy God, He has to judge sin. But God is a God of love because at the same time, He is always willing to love and forgive those who come back to Him. So as we look at this passage, we have to see that actually we are the ones God's people in that time are the ones who forsake God first. When we forsake God and continue to forsake God, we can't then turn around to say, God, it's very unfair that you don't forgive me. If you choose to spurn God, forsake God, turn your back against God and push God away, then it's wrong for you then to expect that God will still forgive you. You see, look at this passage here in verse 28, right? But rebels and sinners will both be broken, but those who forsake the Lord will perish. Now, 
If you choose to continue to forsake God, then the outcome is you will perish. It's not as if God forsook you first and I was unfaithful to you. If you choose to be unfaithful to God and forsake God, God forsakes you. And if you never come back to God, there is no forgiveness for you. His arms are open wide, but if you choose never to go back to Him, how can you ever be forgiven? So I went to preach at a church camp many, many years ago. I think it was the first church camp I ever preached at. And I thought, okay, how hard can it be to preach at a church camp, right? <clears throat> but how wrong it was. I think it was the second day we had a Q&A session. Someone asked a question. If you're once saved, are you always saved? And uh, they said, oh, you know, when the university, they have been taught, quite a few of them at this church, that if you say the sinner's prayer, you will always be saved. You will never lose eternal life. You never lose salvation. So I said, I think we were going through uh, the, the gospel. So I said, no, if we go through the parable of the sower, that's not true because the seed on the shallow soil, well, that never endures to the end, right? The seed on the rocky ground, also that doesn't endure to the end. These people never make it to the end. And so they weren't very happy with me, right? Because they said to me, they said, no, that's not true. As long as you say the sinner's prayer, you will be saved. And they told me about their friends who used to come to church and now no longer go to church and no longer believe in God. Some of them are living sinful lives. And I was thinking to myself, this is foolish thinking. right? Because if you think that one day, just because you said the sinner's prayer, but then for the rest of your life you forsake God, you divorce God, you abandon God, you turn your back against God, you spurn God, you push God away, do you really think that God will then still forgive you. You are the one who acted first to forsake God. God didn't forsake you. You forsake God first. And God is still calling you back, but you still keep pushing God away. Do you really think that God will forgive you? No, He won't. Because if you rebel against God, then there is no forgiveness for you. You can't find your way into the fateful city of Jerusalem. So I think uh, I want to share with you this last passage from the Bible. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Theologically, I think it's very dense, but I think it says the same thing, right? Here's a trustworthy saying. If we died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we disown Him, He will also disown us. If we are faithless, He will remain faithful, for He cannot his own himself. Now this is a, the last verse is a very surprising verse, right? Because everything seems to be following along logically, right? I mean, if, if we disown God, God disowns us. That makes sense, right? But how is it if we are faithless, God will remain faithful? I think what this passage is saying is, even as we are faithless to God, God remains faithful to his promises. God remains faithful to his character. He still is willing to receive you back. He's still willing to forgive you. But only if you are willing to come back to Him. So I think that as we look at today's passage, we are able to heed and hear the warning that God gave to God's people through the prophet Isaiah. 
What is the state of our relationship with God? Are we seeking to please Him? Do we desire to know Him more? Or have we forsaken Him? And have we spurned God? Help us to see that God is still willing to receive us back. Only if we're willing to come back to Him. And I hope that as we examine our hearts honestly, that we will want to come back to this wonderful God who is able and willing to forgive us even as we have forsaken Him. So let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that you help us to see that just as it is wrong for a child to disobey his or her parents, just as it is wrong for an animal not to know its master, how much greater is it wrong for the creature, for us, to rebel and not know this great covenant God, and all the more, this God who has sent Jesus to die for us. Dear Father, we pray that we may examine our hearts honestly and to ask ourselves, in all that we do, do we seek to please you? In all that we do, do we seek to know you better? In all that we do, do we seek to truly desire what you desire? Help us to ask ourselves if our identity, first and foremostly, is our relationship with Jesus. And help us to come back to you if we have forsaken you, if we have spurned you, if we have turned our backs against you. Confident in the knowledge that you will receive us with open arms and you will make our sins, which are red as crimson and as scarlet, to become as white as snow and as wool. Because Jesus Christ can wash away all those sins. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.